Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Nate from the Digital Content and Accessibility Team within MSUIT. You know, we had a great uh, meeting last month. Jesse Early and Stephen Thomas kicked us off from the College of Natural Science. What I appreciated they did is they talked about their digital accessibility program from a couple different perspectives. Jesse talked about their digital properties and their web presence and how they're checking for accessibility there. And then Stephen talked about the staff training that they're focusing on proactively, as well as some of the work that they're doing in teaching and learning on the academic side of the house. So really, really cool to, to hear it from a few different perspectives. And then you may not know this, but one of the fastest growing areas of the that the RCPD has seen is students who are registering with psychiatric disabilities, which personally, this is not an area that I have a ton of experience in. So it was really great that Leslie brought some information, some awareness and understanding on the topic. And you know, the main goal is really trying to find ways to support our students, faculty and staff. So I think if you listen to that segment, it would be really helpful to you. I also want to give a reminder, May 16th, save the date. It's IT Next Access and Inclusion, which is in alignment with Global Accessibility Awareness Day. It's going to be a conference that's free the afternoon of the 16th from 1 to 4. And there's an optional reception afterwards. You can register now on Web Access. Just go to the left-hand navigation. You'll see IT Next Conference. Uh, definitely check it out. It's a good resource for you and the folks within your colleges and departments. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about some of the resources we've added. DCAT, we've, we've been a bunch of busy bees over the last month, and there's a lot of new content there that all revolve around Provost Hewitt's Digital Content Guidelines for Instruction Update. If you haven't read that, you can read it on Web Access, as well as some of the supplemental material that we provided. Basically, if you have faculty or, or academic staff that have questions around, okay, how does this impact me? Yes, I use PDF. What does that mean for me? Or yes, I use publisher content. What should I be doing? There's a lot of helpful resources there. And I also want to give a shout out to our, our uh, colleagues at CU Boulder. They gave us permission to share some of the great content that they had provided that really addressed some of the faculty questions directly. So hopefully to be useful to you. And then as we wrap up here, our next meeting, April 5th, is our next Web Accessibility Policy Liaisons meeting. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us. Welcome, everybody, to meeting number 41. We've never met in this room. This is super cool. Thank you, uh, Jesse and Stephen, for setting up 105 natural science. It's fun to kind of change it up a little bit. We have a less packed agenda than last month. Again, I am so sorry that that was so chaotic last month. We have a few things we're going to go through. First of all, we're going to start off, Jesse and, and Stephen are going to talk a little bit about the digital accessibility program within the College of Natural Science. Um, we've been trying to do that every month with the folks who are hosting uh, in different buildings. So excited to hear more about that. Um, we have Leslie Johnson from the RCPD to talk a very uh, specific topic um, this week. We want to talk a little bit about the Save the Date that we talked about last month in alignment with Global Accessibility Awareness Day. We want to talk about a number of new resources from the past month that have gone out, a few of them, and I just want to take a few minutes to kind of walk through those. And then lastly, if we have time, we may not get to this, and that's okay if it drops off the agenda this month. I will send it out in the slide deck and then we'll reserve some time next month. But we wanted to walk through some of the feedback that we've collected. Jess, not from the MSU Innovation Hub, helped me kind of collect all the feedback we got last month and the month before in the retrospective. She helped me kind of summarize that, put it together. So I want to share some of that, um, that feedback you've given us. Does that all sound good? All right. Without further ado, I'll welcome Stephen and Jesse up.
Uh, so for those of you who don't know me, I'm Stephen Thomas. I'm in the College of Natural Science. The way that um, our college handles accessibility is kind of a split between three people. So between me and Corey Feta hartley and then Jesse, we divide it mostly between web and academics. And so from our side of the academic aisle, we've been looking at different ways of how do we improve the culture of accessibility with faculty. And so one of the first pieces that we've been working on is um, an accessibility liaison network so each department has identified someone and again we we see a similar split sometimes those departments have one person handling both the academic and the website and sometimes they've split it and so what we're trying to do is create a network that we meet more regularly than we are currently that's one of our goals because currently it's we meet and if there's issues then we might meet again but we're hoping to kind of shift that to being more community-based. And one of the things that we're going to be doing rec more recently is moving from a D2L site to being having a Microsoft Teams, because hopefully that will allow for things like chatting around issues and collecting files in a more dynamic way. So that's one of the things that we're hoping to implement this coming up. And again, with that, with the Teams, you can actually embed a OneNote notebook in the team. And so we're hoping to use that as kind of a manual. Because when we have turnover with regards to the accessibility liaisons, then once they're added to that, they're in the community, they can chat and discuss, but they also will have all the resources right there that they can draw upon. One of the things that we are finding is an issue is even with this split, right, with web and academics, we have a, a population of faculty who are focused on research who may not actually have experiences trying to think about accessibility or mediating. And so one of the things that we've been thinking about is how do we either reach that population or how do we create a culture that finds a way to reach them. One of the things we're working on is accessibility for staff. Um, again, one of the things that we've I think come to realize is that we talk about it with regards to people who are specifically involved in web development creation of content and academics. But honestly, the call for accessibility is across the board and it's supposed to be for everyone. So how do we create a culture where everyone is interested in trying to think about accessibility? We've created an award system. So in this first case, we're dealing with Word documents. So there's a certificate that they get upon completion of three badges. And our philosophy behind this has actually been not comprehension, I mean comprehensive, we want comprehension, <laughs> but we don't necessarily want a comprehensive, like in-depth, overwhelming training. The goal is how do we have kind of a touch point where people can stick their toe in, see what it's all about, and then hopefully follow up upon. So we've taken content that was created by the web access people. We've gotten feedback from Cal with regards to badging system and the Broad with their work on the web access piece and created these kind of very minute chunks. So the idea is that you can earn a badge in 15 minutes. So you can earn a badge on, the, on navigation and how do you think about navigation in roughly 15 minutes. And then, so the whole certificate around word accessibility takes about 45 to an hour. So it's a relatively low bar that people can get in and feel what it's about. And we're trying to do more about intrinsic motivation so we've tried, do you all know what Rick Rolling is? We've tried something about accessibility rolling where it was like, here's this cute cat video, go check it out. And when you check it out, it's like me saying, this isn't a cat video, go do your accessibility training, link below, right? Or we have memes that we've generated that when someone finishes a badge, it generates a meme like uh, with Kermit the Frog, like drinking his tea saying, 
something like I'm enjoying my accessibility, <laughs> got, ex got, got navigation bars or something like that. And the idea is it sends that to people who have finished the badge and it says, please email this to five of your colleagues. And the idea is can you create kind of a culture of trying to pass it along and trying to have expectations of accessibility. So I think philosophically we're still trying to wrestle with like, because I find myself doing it, I'm like, how do we get people to include this in their evaluation, which is really about extrinsic motivation, but at some time we're trying to create ways of increasing intrinsic motivation for thinking about it. So anyway, these are ways that we are dealing with trying to increase accessibility. Casey Henley from our college is co-facilitating the learning community with Latanya Motley from Cal Broad on accessibility and universal design. And our next steps are using the ITGMSU to create playlists for academics to think about accessibility and working with RCPD and Stephen Blosser's projects on accessible equations. That's a huge piece that I think both Jeremy from the Broad and I have been thinking about how do we get faculty to make more accessible equations. So I think that's from the academic side. Those have been our things that we've been focused on. And then I'll pass this over to Jesse, who will talk about from the web perspective. Hello. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jesse Early. Um, I'm digital, digital media manager here for the College of Natural Science. And as Stephen said, I kind of handle the website of accessibility. So I, wanna, I actually do have a little bit of a demo here, or a couple of demos I'm going to run through. Um, but from my end, um, so I work with all of our content editors. We have roughly 95 websites or so, about 300 and it's about 340 content editors in total. I work directly with about a third of them. That third is kind of recognized as like the primary content editors or the site owners, or the primary contacts for the site. So those are the ones I kind of deal with on a month uh, to month basis for accessibility. Everyone else, I have like an accessibility bat and I just kind of beat, them in, beat it into them. But there's a couple of different things that I do each month. So one thing that I do um, is I send out just a uh, accessibility email to um, all those content editors. Um, and that includes different things like tips, tricks, some how-to stuff. There are different accessibility issues that I see each month on different sites within our CMS. And if I see those happen repeatedly, I kind of call those out in the, the monthly emails that I send out and tell people how to fix and address those issues. One of the other emails that I send out once a month is an accessibility report. So we have to communicate to IT kind of the status of our websites in terms of their um, accessibility status each month. So one thing that we have built in, so we use the Mira content management system. This is an open source CMS. One thing that we've built is a custom plugin that we've named Mira Accessibility. So this runs on DQ Labs Axe Core. So if you're not familiar with that, it's out here on GitHub. But essentially what that does is it allows our content editors to automatically scan, do an automated scan of their website. So if I go to our plugins here, for example, and I pull up the Mirror Accessibility plugin. So to load here, you can see it, it shows how many pages are on this site. In this particular instance, we're looking at the College of Natural Science website. So if I can, I can click on Start Checking the Site, and it'll go through and it'll scan the content on each one of those pages. So again, this is an automated process, so it's not going to catch everything. But this is something that our content editors can run once a month. A lot of them don't. So what I do is at the end of the month, I run this accessibility tool for each of our websites, and I send out a report to each of the website content editors that happens to have any accessibility issues on it. So for this previous month, so for February, when I ran this, about 80% of our sites didn't have any issues at all per this tool, um, and about 20% did. So I sent out accessibility report to those sites, 
And that report includes a link to the page, it includes what the issue is, and includes a link to DQ on how to actually address that particular issue. So one site that I know of that has some issues on it is this impact site. So if I click on the about page here, so I'm actually authenticated right now, so I'm logged into our system and since I'm an admin across the entire CMS, I have access to all these sites. Um, but I'm logged in as an editor here, and you'll notice that we have this number up here in the, the top right corner. So if I click on that, that'll show, well, first of all, the number shows how many issues there are on that, are on that particular page. And if I click on it, you'll, it, you'll see that it expands here, and it shows what the issues are. And if I click on one of them, it'll actually highlight it and, and show what that issue is. Now, if I click on this, so the heading here, it gives me more information about what the issue is and actually explains how to go about fixing that. So a lot of our content editors, um, once I send out the report to them, they go through it, they fix it just fine. Some of them still have issues. They're not entirely sure what this means. Uh, so they'll, they'll contact me and I'll go through and kind of walk them through the process of actually addressing the issue. So that's kind of what I do on a monthly basis. Um, one of the other tools that we introduced for accessibility is our accessibility toolbar here. So I saw this on a uh, township website in the township that I live in, something very similar to this. And I actually looked it up and it was actually a paid product. I'm like, well, I can come up with something very similar for, for free. So I essentially did that. I have this out there on uh, GitHub as well. So it's free open source if you wanna download it, play around with it. But for the website visitors, it gives them different tools to make it more accessible for them. So as you can see, we've got grayscale, got link highlighting, we can change the contrast, increase the text size. And with that, we've got our links directly to the uh, site accessibility page. We've got a link directly to the site map. So if you're unsure of the, the keyboard combination, how to activate that, if you're doing keyboard navigation, the very first tab will bring up the option to bring up the accessibility toolbar, and you can activate it that way. It shows on here on this particular page how to activate it. That's just with the Alt-Shift-A button. And since our content management system uses the same theme throughout, this is on all of the websites that we host within our, our CMS. So. so those are some of the things that we're doing for users, and those are some of the things that we're doing for content editors for accessibility. Awesome. Jesse, thank Sorry. you. Steven, thank you. Appreciate you guys uh, sharing what you're learning, what you're doing. It's always, uh, I have not seen a lot of that stuff. That's really cool. Next up, Leslie Johnson from the RCPD. Right. I'm talking about um, accessibility for students with psychiatric disabilities. In one of the, the previous um, meetings that I was presenting, I showed this chart that has the, the breakdowns for students at MSU that are registered with our office and what disability they have and are self-identified with. So you can see psychiatric disabilities is 33%, so it's one of our largest populations. It's right there with um, learning disabilities. And these statistics are a little bit off for psychiatric disabilities because this just shows students that have permanent disabilities. But we also have a lot of students, um, especially with psychiatric disabilities, that have just temporary accommodations. So maybe for a semester or, you know, a semester or two just for different reasons. So when you calculate those in, it does end up being higher than learning disabilities. And it's also one of the fastest growing. So we get new students every day. When we're talking about psychiatric disabilities, what that means is it's any mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. So our most popular are generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, socialized social anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, bipolar, and then there's eating and um, substance abuse disorders. So for students with psychiatric disabilities, one of the reasons that this is one of our fastest growing areas is because it's a lot more common. The, a lot more people are identifying with a psychiatric disability. And then the interesting thing is that students don't really start showing signs of a mental health condition until 
the ages of 15 to 25, which is right around the time that they would be going to college. So there's already so many stressors in uh, in college life, you know, academic demands, relationships, friends, moving away from home. So if somebody has a, any amount of mental health condition, that just tends to intensify it and make it impact them a lot more. Students with psychiatric disabilities have a difficult time with receiving information, processing it, and just handling, you know, that extra stress that comes with college. So stress and anxiety, one of the biggest impacts that students face is they just get like a blank feeling so often students say like I go to take my exam and I know everything and as soon as I get the exam I just go blank and forget everything that I have ever learned about that subject so that's just one of the most common ways that stress can can impact students another thing that impacts them is just the side effects from medication so there's a lot of different medication that students are on for psychiatric disabilities so not only are there a lot of bad side effects and adjustment to those, but it really impacts memory, attention, alertness and energy, and just their overall motivation, which are all very important things to have when you're in college and trying to be successful. The other thing is that it is an invisible disability, and it's often unpredictable. So students often, you know, are not sure how to get help with it, or if they need to get help, just, you know, it's not like a visible disability that people can readily see and sort of give them resources. Typically students with psychiatric disabilities have to go out on their own and try to find resources which can be challenging and then it's unpredictable so there's no planning for it. You you know you could be doing great and then all of a sudden you know during final exams you know it's it flares up and impacts you so just being able to to handle those unpredictable events. This is just a list of some of the most common experiences students with psychiatric disabilities face while they're a student. The number one is communication. They have a very hard time communicating, whether it's with their professor, with other students, um, and a lot of that goes into just, you know, there's a stigma behind it. They just often feel overwhelmed or unsure of how to how to get help at a time when they need that help because of their mental health condition. Communication is just even even harder for them just because of everything else that they're dealing with. Along with that, I said nervous to talk to professors and ask for help. I think that's the number one thing I hear all day, every day from my students that I work with is they're terrified to go talk to their professors. It's just because of, you know, the professor may have done nothing wrong. They're just, it's just a very scary thing to do because they seem to be like an authority figure and just having to go up and talk to them and tell them that they need help is just a very scary thing for them to admit. The other difficulty with attendance, so whether it's just because of impact from their disability or if they've been hospitalized, they have difficulty with attendance at times. And then even when they are attending class, they have a hard time with attention and, and concentration and just being able to always get a lot out of the lectures or classes. Um, along with that is short-term and long-term memory deficits. So they could be sitting in a class and hear the lecture and then when they walk out, forget it. So just, again, from the stress and not being able to retain that information. The other thing is uh, difficulty with organization and time management. Those executive functioning skills that are very important, time, you know, time management, planning, organizing, are usually impacted um, with students with psychiatric disabilities. The obvious is feelings of low self and feelings not feeling good about yourself, not confident, difficulty working in groups. There's just the general, I mean, everybody has a difficult time usually working with groups sometimes, but there's that added, um, social anxiety component which can make it really difficult you know especially in our large classes so walking into a, a giant lecture hall can be very intimidating and overwhelming and then in that large lecture hall like the fear of being called on that's another thing that I hear a lot is that they're like I sit in class and the whole time all I can think about is like oh my gosh is a professor going to call me to ask me to speak and so then by the end of the class I've listened to nothing because I've been thinking about 
being called on the whole time. So just trying to help students through that. These are just some more common challenges. So one of the biggest things is students often wait to self-identify with us until they're really in a bad, bad crisis or they are just doing really poorly in their classes. So um, right now, like midterm times to so the end of the semester is when the amount of the students with psychiatric disabilities really kind of flood us at RCPD. So they may be realizing that they're not doing well this semester. And so they reach out to get help. And at that point, a lot of times it's it's too late. There's not that much that we can do. So we really try to just encourage to self-identify and, and reach out as soon as possible, even if you're doing fine at that moment. The other thing is students are often unsure of where to get help. So it's not really common that a student with anxiety or depression would correlate that to being able to receive disability accommodations. So as students that that's blind or visually impaired, it's just, you know, it's second nature. They would go and get accommodations for assistance. With psychiatric disabilities, there's just not that immediate connection. The other thing is just self-motivation. Um, you know, there's moving to college is a big transition. There's no parents that were probably very involved before in, you know, keeping them on task and helping them be motivated if they're having a day where, you know, they're not feeling like they can be as successful in, in classes. Their parents were there to kind of push them so they, they don't have that. The other thing is students often are coming in um, and it's kind of surprising how little skills they have is for like time management and note taking and study habit. They just are not I don't know if they're not teaching that as, as often in high school or they're just not knowing what to or how to do that. So we're often just going back to the basics of how to take notes, which is a big hurdle for them. And so these are the most common accommodations that we provide for students with psychiatric disabilities. So priority enrollment, that just allows them to sign up for their classes earlier so they can pick classes that... Um, time of day that are better, locations that are better. You know, a lot of them, rather than picking a class that's two days a week for, for like, you know, a longer amount of time, they'll pick a, a class that's spread out over more days, but a shorter time period so they can maintain focus better. The other is testing accommodations, you know, extended time in separate testing rooms. So that time pressure and seeing the clock tick down can just increase anxiety. And then having a separate room with less distractions and not seeing people finish. I know I hear a lot, like, as soon as people start finishing the exam, I feel like I have to rush because I'm falling behind. So without that distraction, they can focus better. Another big one is note-taking assistance. So, you know, when they're in class, having a copy of the PowerPoint slides and often getting access to that beforehand is very helpful so they know what to expect when they're going to class. And then being able to record lectures. So if they're having a difficult time with memory, they can listen to it later. And then we talk a lot about different note-taking technology um, Microsoft OneNote and the uh, uh, Smart Pen, both which have the recording option and make note taking a little bit easier. Flexibility with attendance is another one that I talked about on the previous slide, but just being able to have that flexibility. So if they do miss a, a class, being able to work with the professor to, to make that up, or if they need to step out of class, they're able to do that. Requesting a, you know additional deadlines. So if they have a flare up with their condition, you know right before an assignment to do, being able to request that extra time. And a lot of times students like, I just, just knowing that I can do that is what helps just kind of keep my mental health, you know, better. Alternative methods for in-class participation participation in presentations. Again, this is a big one I sort of talked about, just the fear of being like called on in class and having to speak. So obviously there's a lot of times where that's an essential component for the class, but just 
giving a heads up to the student often helps like I'm going to call on you today so that way if you know they can prepare and, and know that's coming and then presentations there's a lot of different ways to do that besides standing in front of the entire class so just being creative and, and thinking of, of how that can be besides the environment where they're not going to really do successful and then we do housing accommodations so single rooms and service animals emotional support animals we have a lot of those on campus so and they're all very unique animals <laughs> <laughs> so just some tips to support students with psychiatric disabilities is really encouraging students to share their visa and talking about it in a positive way. We hear so many stories about either there is no disability statement in the syllabus or when the instructor talked about it, they just talked about it in a very negative way. So then the student, you know, is already facing some fear of talking to the professor. And then when they've talked about the visa and accommodations in a negative way, it just makes that process even more difficult for them. Providing an advance notice of course assignments and expectations. So a syllabus, I, I'm always shocked too at how many professors don't provide a syllabus or a course calendar or anything. And, um, you know, that something like that just really helps so they know what to expect, what's coming up. Um, you know, an assignment rubric, so what is expected for an assignment. Supportive faculty, so just again being open to implementing accommodations, you know, getting support from the department too, and the faculty has to provide testing accommodations. It's really helpful when there's a system in place for the, the college and department support to kind of help with faculty organization and time management skills. So like I said, helping students or meeting with students and helping them break down or having ideas on how to break down assignments, organize their time and, and complete that. And universal design um, technique, you know, techniques are going to really help students with psychiatric disabilities and just meeting the different learning styles, providing different types of assignments or approaches will help. Having some structure and being held accountable and kind of expectations are going to be really helpful. And then campus connections, just having faculty, peers, or student organizations and helping these students kind of connect to those and maybe facilitating those connections among peers or groups or if there's student organizations within that college or program, so just helping make those connections. And I think that's it. I just kind of went through and broad overview about psychiatric disabilities. Anyone have any questions or? Yeah. Yes, they do. Oh, yep. The question was, do students need to have a clinical diagnosis to receive services? And they do. It has to be a clinical diagnosis, and it has to actually be from a mental health professional. So even if we get, like, a clinical diagnosis from, like, a family doctor, we could arrange accommodations, like, temporarily while they try to get connected to a mental health professional, but it has to be from, like, a psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, counselor. It has to be from a specialist. Yes. Yeah, so that would be like if a student, um, like PTSD is one that is often going to be temporary. So if a student, you know, was just recently diagnosed with PTSD due to a, a traumatic event, it may be that they're really having a lot of impacts right now and you know, maybe in a semester or two, they're not going to have those impacts or they hope they're not to have those impacts or the same impacts. So that's where that could be like temporary. Will you be sharing your slides? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and she asked if I'd share my slides and I said absolutely. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. I've really, really been enjoying having you and, and Angela here at these meetings to kind of 
go into different topics and talk about this. Help us to learn about the students that go here to MSU, so thank you. Okay, so just going to continue on with the agenda here for a moment. So last month I teased out a save the date for May 16th. We are going to be having a conference called IT Next. Uh, we have a little bit more information that is now available on the web access website, so I just want to take a peek there. If you go to our homepage, it's uh, now part of the left-hand navigation all the way at the bottom, just called IT Next. And this gives you a little bit of brief information about uh, kind of the when it's happening and the location on campus. So we're going to be meeting at the Clara Bell Smith Center, which um, I had never been to or heard of before. Uh, anybody else never heard of that place before? You go by there. All the yeah, that's true. So it's actually right across from the stadium. and. It's a really, really great location, holds about a, a couple hundred people. We went and checked it out just to make sure it would be a really accessible spot, and I think it's going to fit really well for us. So more information is going to be coming out over the next month once we have firmed up some stuff, but expect a half-day type event and expect it in the afternoon of that day. Again, more information as soon as we have it, but um, for now, at least know that it is in alignment with Global Accessibility Awareness Day, uh, which happens globally on the 16th. All right, moving on. The next thing that I want to share are a number of new resources. In fact, I'm just going to stay in the browser for this. There were a number of new updates that we added to web access over the last month. We think they're going to be really, really helpful to you as liaisons kind of coordinating within your, your colleges and departments. So I just want to kind of take a, a moment to walk through these. The first is we've started, you've probably noticed microphones for the first time in these WAPL meetings since January. And so what we've been doing, we've been getting a lot of feedback from people to say, hey, would you um, live stream that? Um, I can't make it into campus on the days that you meet or at the times that you meet. And for a number of different reasons, we said, you know what, we can't live stream it, but let's record them and make them available as a podcast. So um, Nick has been doing an awesome job editing these things together and putting them into a, a format. We call them a podcast because our, our desire is to send those out via RSS to like iTunes and, and uh, Android podcasts. Uh, we're still trying to get that sorted out. So for now, if you want to listen to the uh, recording from the previous month, you go to our schedule page on web access, look up the date, and if there isn't a recording there, just know that we probably didn't record it. We did start these in January, so if you click on the audio button, that's going to send you to uh, Media Space, and then you can play it from there. Yeah, got a fun bumper at the beginning, you know. All right, so I, I give kind of a couple minute overview of what is going on, what we talked about from the last month, and then you can skip to different points in the in the recording. So hopefully it's another easy way for you to kind of understand if you didn't get to a meeting, kind of what we covered in the meeting, and, and uh, catch up that way. It's also a great way to send it out to your folks in your colleges. If there's interest in a specific topic, that's a great way to kind of share that with them if, if there's something specific that you think would be helpful to them. And there's also a transcript too. So if you'd prefer to not listen to my voice, you can read the transcript. Uh, you can have Siri read you the transcript if you want, however you want to uh, do that. So we'll be adding those podcasts and transcripts as soon as we have them done each month. So we're still trying to work out the bugs of the workflow, but we're getting there. Okay. The next thing I want to show off, how many saw the recent digital content guidelines for instructional content from Provost Hewitt? Yay. Okay, that is really, really good news. I'm happy about that. Sometimes DDCs don't always make their way to all of us. Anybody ever have that experience? So that makes me really happy that, that you all saw that. We did, we tried to use kind of a social approach to push some of this content out as it came forward. But essentially, the memo is intended to be a reminder 
about Provost Hewitt's, um, some of her initial comments on something that was referred to as e-texts back in 2013. Six years have gone by, that's been a long time, and so it's reframing and updating some of those uh, expectations for the use of digital content in the instructional environment. And so you can kind of go through here and see what kind of expectations that, that she laid out here. A couple of the things I do want to focus on, because there are other resources that I think are going to be specifically helpful to your faculty and staff. The first of which is under bullet point four. It's called Faculty Questions About Digital Content. This is intended to provide some questions, and it's actually shared from our colleagues at University of Colorado Boulder. They had this, this great bit of content put together, and I asked them if we could share it with our campus uh, with attribution, and, and they gave us access to that. And so what it does is it provides a framework for, for you and your faculty to be able to ask questions about publisher content before they may adopt it within their course. So it ask questions like contact the publisher and ask for information about the accessibility of the product before you add it. It has a bullet here about reviewing any assessments that you may be taking from a publisher and here's a way you might be able to do that. You can consult with digital accessibility specialists, that's that's our team, or we can get you connected with other folks that maybe can help you in better ways. And then notifying your students about what kind of course materials you're using before you use them in the course. It also has some boilerplate language that may be helpful for syllabi. So if you have questions questions about that, you can uh, definitely read more on this page. It also gives a really great example from some of the work that's happening with Heidi and her colleagues within the Big Ten Academic Alliance, uh, as well as Graham from UARC, who's one of the, the featured reviewers. This is a really, really good example of databases and other bits of publisher information that are being reviewed for accessibility, and then they're posting those publicly through the Big Ten Academic Alliance. So you can review those there. Other institutions can review them. It's becoming a really, really great repository. So if you haven't seen that or checked that out before, I definitely encourage you to, to take a look at that. Before you move on from this page, Nate, yeah. under bullet number three, is it possible to link over where you say uh, accessibility policy liaison over to the waffle list of us? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Great point. We'll do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The question was, can we uh, add a link to... Um, the web accessibility policy liaisons to web access, so we'll, we'll get that added. Excellent. Any other questions about the DDC or this faculty resource here? Okay, I'll keep moving on. Another resource that we developed really recently, we had some great feedback from Scott Shoproy, from Latanya Motley and Broad, and, and a few others, is this idea about preventing changes to digital content. And I want to talk a little bit about the background for this. So there is a sense, I think, and it's it's completely fair. We've been using PDFs for many, many, many years. Early on, when Adobe launched PDF, that was kind of the standardized way to provide course materials to your students because it was a free reader that they could use and download and share, right? And because it was no cost, it was easily used. And at the time, it was not as easy to edit those PDFs once they're provided uh, in a course. Today, it's very easy to edit any kind of digital content. You don't even have to have paid software to do that in a lot of cases. And so this is intended to provide some guidance to faculty who are very used to using PDF for a lot of really great reasons and help them understand how you could use Microsoft Word to mark their documents as final and to provide some transparency around this isn't going to completely lock down your Microsoft Word document. In fact, that 
may be impossible to do across the board, but what it will do is safeguard you in terms of marking that, that document as final and then also providing some course policies on what your expectations are for your students in terms of editing your course content. So just providing some clarity within the syllabus or within the detail course, however is most convenient. This is just example language that they can they can use. Obviously, you could tweak that however you're most comfortable. Uh, it's intended to just kind of meet that concern and provide a helpful resource to you that you can kind of forward on and share. Any questions on this bit of content? Yeah. Mm. I mean, you could argue while we're a own 365 school, so if it's school related, we should be using Microsoft. That's kind of my fat answer. Mm -hmm. But it, it's because of this case that I really appreciate it. It's easier to say, well, the PDFs aren't necessarily uneditable, and you know, you can lock it down. Mm. Do we have a bigger or, or a different answer to the notion that PDFs are more easily disseminated across devices? So the question was, do we have an answer for the question um, that PDFs are e more easily, easily um, dispersed across different devices? We don't hear, but that's a really good point. I think we should. In fact, Microsoft, what I've been learning as I've been having some of these conversations is a lot of students and faculty don't realize that Microsoft provides their apps for free across Android, across Windows, across iOS, and they all work pretty well. Um, so that may meet that concern. What I like about that, with a PDF on a mobile device, you kind of have to pinch and zoom. It's not a great experience. Um, with the native apps, regardless of the device you have, makes it so it's mobile friendly and easier to read on a mobile device, tablet, computer, and it's all free again. We're, we're trying to meet that need of student cost and try to keep those low. So Microsoft offers something that they can use, your faculty can use. They, they can be able to call in get, and get 24-7 support through the help desk if they need that. So it offers a lot of removal of barriers, not just related to digital accessibility as it relates to disability. Any other questions related to this? Yeah. Um, so one question that I've come across in library land kind of related to this memo, um, but I think could be relevant to certain faculty dealing with historical primary documents is a lot of times PDFs is used because it's a scanned copy of an original document that can be handwritten or that has um, you know, something in the visual that's really necessary, they believe, um, to, to get across to students. Mm -hmm. um, so in that case, is DCAT recommending uh, the really manual labor of making that PDF completely accessible, you know, like using something like Abby and doing everything? Mm -hmm. Or um, what, are you, what are you kind of telling faculty in, in that case, or how is DCAT that's a great question. And the question uh, I'll try to summarize is essentially the idea of what do we do with third-party content that's being delivered in PDF format? What's the recommendation in terms of providing that accessibly? More than anything, I mean, this is a, a recommendation from, uh, from our provost first. Uh, I think we should um, say that. But then um, also, you know as well, we're starting to get into the world of, like, is this a copyright challenge versus an accessibility challenge? And what are the roles that those, how do those intertwine um, sometimes? I know that a copyright lawyer would say um, you don't want to convert 
somebody else's content without permission. That would be a copyright violation. So I'm not sure that we're recommending anything up to that point. There's going to be nuances here and there. Uh, I think the spirit of Provost Hewitt's message here is really about faculty-authored content, but it doesn't. that doesn't answer your question directly. So I think the answer is we don't know yet. Some of that will have to be on a case-by-case basis. Leslie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if a student has a visa, we would have permission legally to change that. Okay, okay. So we would be able to do it in those cases, but other cases we're just trying to do the proactive thing. That's what's such a bummer about this. We wouldn't be able to do that without getting copyright permission. So I think it's probably a bigger conversation we should continue to have and start to sort out for sure. Any other questions related to the memo? Yeah, Charlie. Sure. So the question is about um, what's the recommendation in terms of citing academically within different documents? Is that kind of the, okay. Um, that's a really good question as well. Yeah. That's a great recommendation. I'm going to try to summarize. Uh, recommendation from Graham to address that question maybe more directly rather than um, citing a specific page, you could cite a heading within a document to move away from more uh, print-based to more digital methods. Are there any examples of that that we see in academia in terms of publishing? Um, Interesting. Yeah. So uh, we'll we'll have some more investigation to do, um, 
and I just want to stress that um, we'd like to be involved with, with those conversations if there's something we can do to help. Um, we'd love to set up a time to, to chat, Charlie. All right. Any other questions related to the digital content guidelines for instruction? Yeah. Heidi. So the question is, is there a recommendation for how many pages a document might be? Uh, is that an effort to like digital document, digital document um, an effort to reduce scrolling maybe or something? Uh, or? Makes a lot of sense. I, the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the multiple page, digital page conundrum would be like a table of contents. So they could jump, um, they have the contents at the front and then could jump further down in the document without, without having to scroll. It might be an easy, easy way to do it, at least within uh, a Word or on a uh, HTML web page. Uh, kind of quickly. That's something we could bring back to the team though and, and talk a little bit about. Or maybe the other folks have other recommendations. It's, it's kind of one of those things where sometimes you have to do both. Um, and you'll find that oftentimes, for example, on the uh, W3 website, they'll have blocks of pieces of the document as separate pages, but they'll also give you the opportunity to go to a whole document in some form or another. And that is extremely beneficial for anybody who wants to do a text search. Um, through the whole document, is mm -hmm. because doing it on the on the huge whole document, even though you don't necessarily always want to download that thing, um, is a big benefit if you if you want to do a text search as opposed to you know the little teeny blocks that just cover a page topic at a time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a toss up. Hmm. One of the thoughts I had related to that is if we have a lot of these short documents, it would reduce the amount of time we're having to spend remediating PDFs by just remediating. Now, now faculty members frequently wind up having to have their same document every semester re-remediated mm -hmm. um, because they go back and just make changes to the Word document, the original. Um, maybe they've not got it in accessible form to start with. They should get it in accessible form. We're going to start encouraging them in PCAT. Get it in accessible form first. Have the students review it for accessibility first before you put it out. Um, mm -hmm. Then you don't have to worry about those repeat things down the road. We're very excited for that too, for that same reason. We're, like Jim said, we're starting to re-review some of the same content. 
Uh, it's like, wow, we put that in Word, and now it's back in PDF somehow. How did that happen? Uh, we're hoping to get out of that cycle. In fact, we're going to discontinue editing PDFs as part of our services at a certain point. We're going to set a deadline for that. We haven't determined the date yet, but um, in order to try to encourage folks to continue to move towards uh, native formats. Yeah. Also throughout this, grant products have been involved for years that had you know, 200 plus page planning documents as part of them. Um, so as part of the grant project, these really long documents that were available to the public. And for years, I kind of argued against having these documents because no one was looking through these 200 page documents. And accessibility ended up being one of the things that finally got them to switch to having like a 10 or 20 page max in these things. And I was remediating 200 plus page PDFs that were full of maps and things like that. They were horrible to deal with. And now they've switched to more like a 10 page format. Not only are they easier from an accessibility perspective, they're much more consumable and usable to the average user anyway. Mm -hmm. So accessibility in a number of ways like that has also been used to question what we're really producing and whether what we're producing is worth the effort of writing just because it's what we're used to producing as opposed to what the user needs. And so if accessibility can be a method to reinforce or re-ask that question, you may end up in a position where it's, well, yeah, I guess we, you know, there'll be initial resistance, but oh yeah, I guess we could make this a 10-page thing and then, great, that's so much less work to fix mm -hmm. or to have the person make accessible in the first place that it's transformative for a lot of projects. And so that's, that's one thing I just throw out there is yeah. something to think about if possible. This was a movement just overall that we were really advocating for in DCAT because one of the bits of feedback you were giving us over the last, uh, say, 12 months was, hey, <laughs> the PDF editing uh, document is, uh, uh, Acrobat Pro DC is expensive. Uh, do you expect us to all buy that across the unit? And that can add up. And so by being able to use something that's a native uh, platform that is free to you and your students, we're hoping that can reduce some cost within the unit. We have, uh, I'm at my last minute here. So the one last piece of content is not on, on um, uh, web access, but I did want to um, promote it. I hate promoting things that I work on, but I am going to promote this one thing for a really important reason. So this is an article that I published through the Hub, the Innovation Hub, and it's all it, it expands on uh, Provost Hewitt's DDC, and it talks about sort of the why this is important for access, um, why this movement for MSU, this recommendation is important. So I think it could be a piece that may be, may be helpful on some of the philosophy or the, the cultural side of things if you have questions within your unit that are more geared towards that. I think that could be really beneficial. So, I mean, we were, we were based on being a land-grant institution that provides uh, opportunity based on access, right? And we, want, we have a really, really great opportunity to provide that opportunity to our students through a free platform that we're supporting, that we're getting behind, that's more accessible. It has a lot of different benefits to it. So this article kind of goes into that. It's a really qu quick read, and I uh, hope it's helpful to you. I went a minute over. I apologize for that. I'm going to send out the PowerPoint because we didn't get to, to everything. Hopefully you can kind of get through some of those notes in the next month. Listen to the podcast. Read the transcript if you don't want to listen to me. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody.